Welcome to the Religious Feminism Podcast. I'm your host, April Young Bennett. And today we're going to talk a little bit about religious feminism and history. And I will let my guest introduce herself. Hi, my name is Katherine Ketterman. I'm the historical director for a Utah nonprofit called Better Days 2020 and a PhD candidate in American history. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in history. So I've always loved history. Um, my dad was a history professor growing up, so there was lots of that in the house, lots of videos and books and, and things about the history he was teaching. And um, when I went to undergrad, I really enjoyed my history classes. I chose an interdisciplinary major of international relations and I loved it. Um, but I found myself thinking more and more about the history classes as time went on. And um, after serving a mission and coming back and um, doing a master's degree in public policy and going down that track, I realized that that was something I was very interested in, but I was still always wondering why things got to be the way that they were and how that happened and what were the forces that had shaped and the world and the, the problems that I wanted to fix and all of those things. So those questions really got me most interested in history. I was lucky to be able to take a lot of classes on the side of my master's program just for fun and audit a few classes um, in the history department. And so that really got me thinking about this as, a, as something I'd want to pursue further. And then I ended up working at the church history department for a year and a half before going off to a PhD program. Great. And can you tell us a little bit about Better Days 2020? Absolutely. So we're a nonprofit based in Utah focused on popularizing Utah women's history. And that means a lot of different things, but especially in the lead up to the year 2020, we're focused on the suffrage anniversaries that will be coming up then. So there's the 150th anniversary of Utah women's first voting in 1870, um, which were the first women to vote after the Seneca Falls Conference and the women's rights movement began in the US. Then it's also the 100th anniversary of the 19th amendment, which extended voting rights to women nationwide, as well as the 55th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. So there's a lot to be celebrated there, a lot to learn from and look back on and do better moving forward. But those are some really good opportunities to highlight the contributions women have made to our state. So we're running with that. Can you tell us about why Utah women came to have voting rights so much sooner than other women in this nation? Yes, it's a, it's a complicated and interesting story. So for many people who hear this history for the first time um, are kind of shocked. They think that sounds a little bit backwards of what I would assume that Utah women would have had voting rights and let out so early in this, in this movement. But really it came down to a congruence of several factors that all came together in, in a perfect moment, I guess you could say for, for Utah women's voting rights. So after the civil war, when people around the nation were debating, especially the 15th Amendment and considering what voting rights should be extended to which groups of people. And um, the women's rights movement, so people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, Lucy Stone, these women who had worked for women's rights and abolition now faced a moment over the 15th Amendment where they had to decide would they support a voting rights amendment that just supported, that just extended the franchise to black men, or would they reject that amendment and say it needed to be including women as well. And so that caused a split in the suffrage movement and lots of other things came from that. 
but the important part is that some suffragists started looking for places where women's suffrage could be safely experimented with in the United States, for lack of a better word. Um, and so there were propositions by a several, oh, proposition sounds bad. <laughs> there were proposals <laughs> by several suffragists nationally to experiment with suffrage by enfranchising the women in US territories. And so this happened several times in the late 1860s. Um, in fact, one of the first times that a discussion of women's suffrage in Utah came up, it was in the New York, New York Times. Um, so there was some discussion in the air that this might be a way to try out women's suffrage to extend voting rights to women and then step back and see what would happen. And um, if bad things happened, then you could say that was the fault of the people out there in the territories. That was a really weird place. That wasn't a really good experiment. Um, only the Mormons would suffer was the way one of the articles put <laughs> it in the New York Times. Um, but if it did work, some suffragists hoped then that they could run with it, embrace it, and then that that might help to spread women's voting rights to other states across the country or even possibly to a national than a constitutional amendment, which several of them were seeking at that time. So that was one suggestion that was thrown out there in the air, something that people were talking about. And the reason why this mattered anyway was that Utah was a territory. And so Congress has lawmaking rights over, or lawmaking powers over territories. And so the, these discussions were happening then with congressional lawmakers. Anti-polygamists also liked this conversation at first. They thought that, um, the Mormon women who were involved in polygamous relationships or who were yoked to this system would then, if they had the right to vote, be able to overthrow that system politically, that gaining political power would allow them to overturn some of the LDS church's political power in Utah, that that might change things with polygamy. So, there, so that was another suggestion. And again, this was very much in line with the politics of the age about the Republican party that was in power had come to power on a platform of eradicating these twin relics of barbarism, which were polygamy and slavery. So this was just in line with what they were trying to do. So uh, several polygamists, sorry, several anti-polygamists who were also suffragists came together and a couple of different representatives proposed bills in the US Congress then to specifically enfranchise the women of Utah. Um, and for example, one of the bills was just called a bill to discourage polygamy, and then it just gave women voting rights, thinking that that, that might be enough. So, so there was there was some some talk about this. Uh, once the congressman in question learned that Utah leaders were in favor of this bill or had no objections to it immediately, then they lost interest in it and it didn't pass. It didn't go anywhere, but it started this discussion going, and. The discussion in Utah was was along similar lines. There were there were all sorts of people with all sorts of different reasons. Um, but whatever the case happened was that the Utah legislature, which was mostly made up of Mormon leaders, then passed a women's suffrage bill unanimously in February of 1870. So Utah became the second territory to enfranchise women. But because Utah territory held elections sooner than Wyoming did, Utah women had the distinction of voting first twice in 1870. So did that all work out like they expected? Did women vote to overturn polygamy? No. <laughs> um, and one of the pieces that's really crucial to understand here, which I probably should have spoken about first, is that um, women in Utah had their own ideas about whether or not voting rights would be a good thing. Um, and several leading 
Latter-day Saint women came together in the 15th Ward Relief Society Hall in January of 1870. So during these conversations about what was going to happen. And uh, they planned to hold a great indignation meeting that took place famously, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's book opens with this great indignation meeting um, to protest anti-polygamy legislation that was under consideration by Congress. But the other part of this organization meeting for that larger meeting was that these women voted to demand the right of franchise or the right of women's right to vote. Um, they all voted on it and then they printed their minutes in the newspaper and didn't print that part where they demanded to the right to vote. Um, so there was, there was a movement underway led by several leading women in the Latter-day Saint community, I think to, to show male political leaders that they could be entrusted with the vote safely, that they could be political partners, that they could use political rights and power to advance the cause of Zion, to contribute to the community, that they could be, again, safely trusted with, with this right to vote. And that indignation meeting where they gathered 5,000 women together to protest anti-polygamy legislation, to speak on their rights as American citizens and, and for the rights of their husbands and brothers and sons and, and this sort of thing. This all happened on January 13th, which was just one month before the Utah Territorial Legislature then voted to give voting rights. So um, I think Latter-day Saint women and other women in Utah had their own ideas from the start about how they were going to vote. Um, but of course, once women started voting in Utah, nothing changed with polygamy still existed. Um, the, the power of the People's Party, which was generally aligned with the Latter-day Saint Church, didn't, didn't crumble. Um, and people started to think this is a problem. So the opposition party in local politics started to file challenges to the women's suffrage law saying that the territorial legislature didn't have the power to enfranchise women and that this should be struck down. They also argued that women were voting who were not naturalized citizens or who were too young. Um, a lot of, mm, I'm trying to think what the right word is, not accusations. These are a lot of points that are brought up often when uh, people are concerned about the way a certain group of people are voting and throughout history in America. But so- and still today. Exactly. So, so that was one piece that was happening here. And then federal legislators started to think, oh no, this isn't happening as we had hoped or planned. Um, some suffragists started to become embarrassed seeing that Latter-day Saint women were using their political power to prop up the system rather than to destroy it. Um, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, for example, had famously come to Utah in 1871, soon after women were enfranchised and said, you know, basically, if the women of Utah don't free themselves, it's their own fault. Now they have the political to tool to do so. So um, some suffragists got really embarrassed and thought this is horrible. We need to just kind of quietly erase this chapter of women's voting rights before it taints the whole movement. Um, but others like Stanton and Anthony who really defended Utah women's voting rights on the principle of voting rights, whatever they thought about polygamy, they argued that these women couldn't be disfranchised or shouldn't be disfranchised because of the way they were voting, just because people didn't like how they were using their political voice. So there were lots of conversations happening both locally and nationally about what to do and basically how to stop these women from voting incorrectly. Um, one famous lecturer, Kate Field, called this the liberty of self-degradation, and that was one of the cries that was taken up. And so Latter-day Saint women or Utah women, 
I guess we're basically speaking about Latter-day Saint women here, had their own responses to this. So starting in about 1873, congressional legislation was introduced almost in every session of Congress that would disfranchise Latter-day Saint women. Usually that was as part of an anti-polygamy bill. So interesting that the tactic had, had switched. Now, now to get rid of polygamy, the, the necessary thing to do was to remove women from the voting pool because women's votes were propping up this political system that was then in turn propping up this church and this marriage system. So not only was there that, but then women had a response. And that's the part I think that usually gets overlooked in this history. The women whose voting rights were being threatened by this legislation crafted a pretty clever political strategy to try to defend their voting rights and their religious rights as they saw them. They were very intertwined. Um, but they drew on the long history of women's political involvement in America. So even though women across the country weren't yet voting, women had inserted themselves or had found ways to, to take part in political activities, to push themselves into that sphere a little bit through abolition, through um, petitioning against Indian removal and then abolition, and then eventually for women's rights at this time. So Latter-day Saint women drew on those traditions of public protests through indignation meetings on those traditions of petitioning as one measure of political power that women could employ in a republic where they couldn't vote. And again, these women in Utah couldn't vote for congressmen and senators and the president because this was a territory. But so they drew on some of those traditions and forged connections with national suffrage leaders in order to make their case, basically to plead against anti-polygamy legislation in general, and then specifically always against those measures that were aimed at disfranchising Utah women. So they, they really crafted an interesting strategy. I think it's fascinating personally, the, the grassroots involvement, their use of the Relief Society's organizational networks, the thousands of women who are signing these petitions. That's a whole other story. Um, that's my dissertation and nobody cares about it as much as I do, but I think it's fascinating. Um, but but they, they tried this and they gathered a lot of support from the more radical suffragists in the country who were willing to support the voting rights even of polygamous women or even of women who could potentially embarrass them on the national stage. Um, but eventually they still weren't able to overcome congressional opposition. In 1882, the Edmonds Act was passed which disfranchised all polygamists in Utah. And then that didn't go far enough. And so in 1887, the Edmonds Tucker Act disfranchised all Utah women, whether they were married or single, monogamous or polygamous, Mormon or not, all, all women's voting rights were then stripped. And nobody threatened the guy's rights the entire time. Uh, interestingly <laughs> not. There were, there were <laughs> let's say, there were, there were some pieces in, those, in both of those laws that you know, disallowed polygamists from serving on juries or other things like this, but no specific group of voting rights was targeted in the way that, that women's voting rights were targeted. I, I think they really, became sort of a political football in this contest. It's often called the Mormon question and lots of people have written about that. Um, but it's interesting that so many people have written about what people said about Mormon women's voting or Mormon women's marriages and not as much about what the women themselves were doing, um, how they saw that. And I think as they, as they stepped onto a national political stage to defend what they saw as their religious liberty and to defend their civil rights, their voting rights from protection, I think they really came to see themselves as citizens of this country whose voting rights and religious rights merited protection. So, you know, it's this virtuous cycle, you could say this feeding off of itself. But I think by 
trying to draw on that identity. I think these women really, really came to see themselves in a different way as actors who had rights and who the government had some obligations toward. And at that point, when they did lose their voting rights, at that time, they had been voting for well over a decade, and most women in the United States still weren't voting at all. So they had had a lot more experience with politics than most other women in the nation at that time. Right. And lots of people across the nation were watching um, to see what Utah women were doing. Because, like you say, women were voting in Wyoming territory. Women were voting in Washington Territory, although they also lost their rights to vote in the 1880s. Um, but in 1887, or sorry, in 1896, by the time Utah women regained their voting rights, women were only voting in two other states. And that happened in Wyoming and in Colorado. So they were really the lone voters speaking at these national suffrage conventions, publishing their descriptions of voting or, or, or their civic engagement courses, things like this. They were really kind of out there by themselves. So let's talk about how they got their voting rights back after all this time. So this is a fascinating little piece of, of suffrage history, I think, because nobody, mm, let's say this, the conventional wisdom in suffrage history is that women in the West didn't have to do much to gain voting rights, that either that men handed them to women as a publicity stunt in Wyoming or to make the Mormon church look good in Utah or these other things. And there are probably some elements of truth to all of this, but women in the West were some of the first to stage these suffrage campaigns that really enacted then political change. And so a lot of the, a lot of the tactics and strategies that Utah women used informed what women in other states did. Um, they were connected with Susan B. Anthony, and so they learned some things from her and she learned some things from them. There were really, I would say there were these two-way connections going back and forth between Utah women and suffragists in the rest of the nation who were watching this play out, hoping to have the chance to use this in a state campaign or, or to, to get somewhere on their national constitutional amendment. But Utah women were the first ones to really do this. Um, so after the Edmonds-Tucker Act disfranchised Utah women, there were some different reactions. Most Utah women who had been voting were upset, um, understandably so, because again, they had been voting for 17 years and they argued that they had been independent voters, that their votes hadn't been compromised or dictated by their husbands or brothers or, or church leaders. Um, and so they embarked on a campaign to show that they were independent and then also especially to regain the vote with Utah statehood. That was their best shot, they thought. So it took a couple of years, but the, some Utah women led by Emily Richards, Emily S. Richards, organized the Utah Woman Suffrage Association in 1889. And that was a branch of Susan B. Anthony's National Woman Suffrage Association. So the, the organization that we may know best from suffrage history, but it was also the, the one that was radical enough to allow polygamous women and crazy Mormons and, and you know, women out West who might make the rest of us look bad join. Um, but so Susan B. Anthony's organization lent them some technical support. And with this Utah Women's Suffrage Association, at first, there were several prominent Utah suffragists who refused to join or refused to help in the organization, Jenny Froyseth being one of them. So she was a non-Mormon who lived in Utah, an ardent suffragist. She'd been involved in suffrage organizations for years, but she believed that as long as polygamy continued in Utah, that women's voting rights were compromised. She had, in fact, formed the Utah Ladies' 
anti-polygamy society, which had lobbied Congress and Christian ministers and, and the president to do something about polygamy, to strip women's voting rights in order to end polygamy. So when they saw that women's voting rights had ended, but polygamy hadn't, they held off for a while. The manifesto, the LDS's church's official declaration of, of the end of polygamy in 1890, then paved the way for some cooperation to happen. And Utah women really came together from various stripes, various religious backgrounds, um, and from all across the territory to make this final push for suffrage with statehood. So as the organization spread, generally through the Relief Society network, um, Emily Richards and Emmeline Wells and other suffrage leaders went around the territory and organized local associations. So the suffrage association had about 19 county organizations by 1895, with several more little organizations meeting in towns across the territory. And they held all sorts of meetings and fundraisers. They would hold political celebrations or historical celebrations for George Washington's birthday, or they would have a ball with characters dressed as women from American history. Um, they decorated carriages for the 24th of July parades. They did all sorts of things to get the conversation out there to help um, keep this uppermost in Utah's minds that this new state, whenever this could happen, should include voting rights for women. And they were pretty successful. So once the territorial, excuse me, once the constitutional convention convened in 1895, Utah women had successfully lobbied for each political party, the Democrats and the Republicans, to include a platform that, or include support for suffrage in their platform. And they had lobbied all of the 107 delegates who were elected to that constitutional convention to ask them to pledge their support for women's suffrage. So they had led up to this campaign. They'd done a lot of work. They thought they had it in the bag. Um, and then things went pretty smoothly in the convention, except for B.H. Uh, Roberts, my favorite delegate from Davis County, who stood up in the convention and, and started to argue that including women's suffrage might endanger statehood, that it could cause more people to vote against the constitution in Utah, that it might cause Congress to reject the state constitution. Um, and for this and several other reasons, he said basically that women should take a backseat, women should bow out, they should allow, they should sacrifice something now to allow statehood to happen and then we could talk about it later. Um, women were really upset. B.H. Um, Roberts' constituency was really upset. Um, Joseph F. Smith was really upset. Everybody was upset at him, but he, he persisted in this argument. So for a couple of weeks there, the Constitutional Convention debated the merits of, of women's suffrage in general, and then the merits of including it or, or not including it in, in the Constitution. There were petition drives that started up basically overnight, um, both for inclusion and then for a separate submission. So to include sorry, to leave suffrage out of the constitution and then submit it to the people to vote on. And um, eventually the, the inclusionists won, um, led by several delegates who really championed the cause, including Franklin S. Richards, who was Emily Richards' husband, and Orson F. Whitney. So as Utah suffragists went door to door, collecting petition signatures, reminding the delegates of the promises they had made, um, they really engaged in some lobbying for the first time, I guess I would say, that they'd had to do. And, and they did succeed in then including or in securing women's suffrage in the Constitution. Interestingly, that, that clause that says that this, the right of all citizens of Utah to vote, regardless of sex, I'm butchering it, I can't quote it exactly, um, to vote and hold office, um, that was a 
a clause that was taken from the Wyoming state constitution, which was the first territory that had become a state with suffrage. Yeah, I love hearing about how they went it back because after having that experience of of being full citizens and voting for a while, they weren't content to just go without later. <laughs> no, and really, I mean, so once the Enabling Act was passed in 1894, once Congress basically paved the way for Utah to apply for statehood again um, for like the seventh time, whichever number this was, um, Susan B. Anthony wrote a letter to Emmeline Wells, which was published in the Woman's Exponent, saying basically, don't be tricked into believing that suffrage will come easily once a constitution is established. This was basically seen by many women across the country as the best way to, to get women's voting rights in there. And I think there was an expectation, again, that this would be smooth because there had been broad support for it in the past. Homes hadn't crumbled, families hadn't disintegrated um, before. Um, but then a lot of people around the country were watching how this campaign went. And Susan B. Anthony actually came to Utah right after this constitutional convention ended in May of 1895. And she brought Reverend Anna Howard Shaw with her and they held, held a conference of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. They brought some suffragists together from Colorado, from Wyoming and from Idaho and Montana. And this was basically a staging ground for them to take what they had learned in Utah and take it to the next states, which were Idaho and Montana. Right, and so Idaho got the right to vote pretty soon after Utah, and then there was just mm -hmm. those four states that were out there in the West by themselves, where yep. women could vote for quite a long, depressing time. So, <laughs> yes, they call it the doldrums in suffrage history until <laughs> 1910. Yeah, but it was a great time to be in the Mountain West. So, <laughs> yes. So thank you so much for sharing this information about Utah's history and its up and down battle to get women the right to vote. And I really like talking about this story because there are so many ways that um, religion and, and politics intersect in this history, mm -hmm. um, both for good and for ill. There are some ways that people's religion caused them to support suffrage, other ways it caused them to be against it. Um, as we're looking at this history, what do you think that modern women's rights advocates can learn from this? Oh, there's a lot. Um, I think one of the things that we learn when we look back at this um, legacy, I would say, of Utah women's advocacy at this time, um, first off, Utah women, many Utah women still continued their suffrage involvement long, you know, past Utah statehood, past the time when Utah women regained the right to vote. Many women were active in these national organizations that were still pushing for state-by-state -state reforms or a constitutional amendment, and women aligned themselves with all sorts of different organizations at that time. Most Utah women were aligned with the National American Woman Suffrage Association, so the more, I mean, you can't call them conservative because they were pushing for women's voting rights, but the more moderate organization, although there were several women who aligned themselves with the National Women's Party, who went to conventions, who picketed the White House, who were arrested for picketing the White House, involved in this night of terror. So I think one of the things that I see is both in 1870 and in 1895 and in 1919, Utah women had a lot of different feelings about women's rights to vote and about what should be done to get there and to secure those rights. And I think it takes all stripes of people. It takes people who are willing to picket the White House, and it takes people who are able to build relationships with leaders that can make change happen. 
And I think we can see that from Utah women's history. I think that a lot of times we think if we're not all working together and we don't all agree on everything that we can't be unified and we can't accomplish anything, but history doesn't seem to show that so much. It, it would be wonderful if that could be the case, but um, you know, the suffrage movement, every organization split five or six times and came back together. Um, and Utah women obviously had their disagreements. Um, yeah, there's just, there, there are a variety of ways to be an advocate for women. Mm -hmm.